Father, as I open your word, I'm reminded as always that you are sovereign over all that happens in the life of the church and of the individuals within the church. Nothing happens, Father, that was not according to your will. Nothing is done, Father, that is not already factored into your plan. And because that is true, Father, this small gathering, as modest as it may be, was begun according to your will and will exist by your power for a purpose you have set forth. And Father, we just pray that our weekly efforts in obedience to serve and to attend, to worship you in spirit and in truth, we hope, Father, and we pray that we have been worthy of the opportunity you've given us in the years we've met and in the future you have for us, that we have served you according to your desires that we are doing the work you have set forth for this group, that we are uh, making an impact, Father, in the kingdom for your glory. Father, we pray that as we devote ourselves into the Word today and to study of the Word, that it will do the good work you have planned for it in each of us, building us up, Father, equipping us for the work of the ministry. And we pray, Father, that you would give us a clear direction on that ministry as well, that you would not simply equip us, but you would direct us into the use of the gifts you've given let, uh, let our work, Father, be pleasing to you. Let our attentiveness to that work never fail. Give us a heart, Father, to not merely call ourselves Christian, but to live as one. Not merely, Father, to attend church, but to reflect what we learn in the world. And not merely, Father, to open your word and study it for its knowledge, but to open your word and consume it, Father, as the bread of life, as the thing which gives us reason to live. For no man, Father, lives on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And as your scriptures teach, Father, the word you've given us this morning was prepared for this very moment, for each of us, that it might do the work you've appointed to it. Father, let us be cognizant. Let us be recognizing that uh, this work that you have prepared in this word, Father, it can be done easily, by our obedience and our acceptance of it, by our willingness to, to listen with a whole heart, ready to obey. Or the work you have prepared, Father, can come slowly and painfully as we dig our heels in and as we resist the call of the Holy Spirit to change or to respond. But make no mistake, we know by your word, Father, it will not go out and come back void. Your work will be done. We pray, Father, that we would go with it easily and not in the hard way. We thank you, Father, for this time this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've been marching through chapter 11. Some might say uh, shuffling through (laughs) slowly. But we're going to get done with it today. We're going to finish this chapter today. It's a pivotal chapter. I've said that several times. And it's worthy of our attention and our time. We've been watching as Jesus offered the kingdom. The nation of Israel rejected that offer in this chapter. And now he's going to move on to the next stage of his ministry. But there are consequences to this rejection. There are consequences, immediate consequences and long-term consequences. And I think the long-term consequences are probably obvious to all of us, right? When the Pharisees rejected the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ, when they blasphemed that the, Holy, the Holy Spirit's work, they were assuring themselves judgment. They rejected the salvation God was offering through Christ. And not just them, but anyone from their generation who followed their lead in that rejection were also assuring themselves that judgment. But the short-term consequences of their rejection, they're a bit more subtle. 
And they're reflected in the gospel record. By short term, I mean in the time that Christ walked the earth. What were the immediate consequences in his ministry to this rejection in chapter 11? First, Jesus altered his teaching style. Now, this is kind of difficult to see in the, Matthew, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, because Luke treats the order of events a little differently than Matthew does. But in Matthew's Gospel, the rejection of Christ, it occurs in chapter 13 of Matthew, rather than chapter 11 here in Luke. But in Matthew's Gospel, there's a very interesting dichotomy. There's a very interesting shift that takes place in the style of Jesus' teaching at the point of the rejection in chapter 13. In the chapters of Matthew leading up to 13, Jesus teaches in a very open style. He declares the kingdom. He openly declares himself to be the Son of Man, the one who was spoken of in Scripture as the Messiah. In fact, he sends his disciples out proclaiming this very news. We saw that in chapter 9 of Luke. Remember, he sent them out, 70 of them, and he said, proclaim the good news, proclaim the kingdom of God. It's a very open offer of the kingdom to everyone. In fact, in Matthew 11:27, he says things like this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's typical of how Jesus was teaching in the chapters of Matthew leading up to chapter 13. In an open style, with no attempt to hide who he is or what he's teaching. But after the Pharisees reject Jesus in chapter 13 of Matthew, which is the same as chapter 11 here in Luke, from that point forward in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus teaches only in parables. He stops teaching in an open style and he starts holding back the truth, shielding it, obscuring it from the audience because the offer is no longer available to them. Remember the answer he gave to the disciples when they said, why do you always speak in parables all of a sudden? And he said, it's because it has not been granted to them to know, it has only been granted to you, meaning to the disciples. At that point, the offer was no longer on the table to the nation of Israel. As I said, that's a little harder to see in the Gospel of Luke because he reorders the events a little bit in a way that obscures that fact. Matthew doesn't because obviously to a Jewish audience it was important for him to show that distinction, to show that line in the sand where the rejection occurs. So the first short-term consequence of the rejection we've been studying here in chapter 11 is that Jesus begins to veil the message of the Gospel from the nation of Israel, thus confirming their rejection. Remember in the a book of Exodus, when Pharaoh is hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart, there comes a point at the seventh of those plagues where God now hardens Pharaoh's heart. There's a point at which God begins to confirm the rejection that was initiated on the part of the hearer. There is a second short-term consequence which we study today in today's teaching out of Luke. The second short-term consequence of the rejection is that Jesus now rejects the formal leadership of the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he declares them to be illegitimate spiritual leaders. And we're going to see that today in Scripture, starting in Luke 11, verse 37. Now, when he had spoken, meaning Jesus, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. 
But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and people who walk over them are unaware of it. We'll stop there. At the conclusion of Jesus' statements to the crowd, he invites, or he's been invited by a Pharisee to come eat. We've seen this happen once before, remember? It's often interesting to me how these Pharisees are so crafty in the way they try to bait Jesus. I mean, to, to the crowd, it looks like the Pharisees are just being magnanimous. They're being very courteous. They're being very generous, right? They, their outward appearance to the crowd is they've invited in this teacher in a very nice and, and uh, gracious way and offered him a meal. But in reality, they're just trying to figure out a way to get to him. They're just trying to figure out a way to tear him down. Or, if nothing else, maybe to bring him to, his, to their side. They're not sure where Jesus, where his allegiance lies, where they can really trust him or not. So Luke tells us that the Pharisees were immediately bothered by the fact that as they came in to eat, Jesus didn't bother to wash ceremonially before the meal. Now, we need to understand what this is really about. Uh, as the name implies, it was a ceremony. We're not talking here about someone removing germs. Okay, I think in our culture, because we understand the connection between dirt on our hands and germs and sickness, we always think of washing before we eat. We should anyway, right? Our kids are often having to be reminded of that. In this culture and in this day, the Pharisees certainly had no idea of germs. The culture had no understanding of the connection between dirt and disease, at least not in the sense that we do today. There's nothing about this act that's intended to promote hygiene. This is a ceremonial religious act exclusively in that culture. The custom had grown up in the Jewish culture to engage in this ceremonial washing of your hands before you ate. It's a very elaborate kind of ceremony. Mark describes it this way in his gospel when he talks about this same incident in chapter 7, verse 3. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and of pitchers and of copper pots. Now, the reason these are notable is that was not common. You see the difference here? You and I think of washing our dishes. Yeah, sure, you wash your dishes. Yeah, of course, you wash your hands. No, what Mark is saying is most people don't do that. The Jews were doing it ceremonially because it was a tradition that they had had handed down to them. And it was unusual. And Mark actually had to go out of his way to explain that to a reader because it wouldn't have made sense otherwise. The reader in that day wouldn't have understood why they needed to do that. You notice he says it's a tradition of the elders. This was not a part of the Mosaic Law. That's an important detail not to miss. What these men are proposing that Jesus needs to do is not the law. It's not something given by God through Moses. Its purpose was to demonstrate piety. You know what piousness is? Piety It's an outward appearance of righteousness. It's outwardly trying to show yourself to be righteous. And so it was a symbolic way to demonstrate that they were righteous. Now, true ceremonial washing, if you were to go back to the law and find examples of where God did give ceremonial washing, true ceremonial washing is intended to describe somebody as being sinful. It's a symbolic way to represent our sinfulness and the need to be cleansed spiritually, right? God provided ceremonial cleansing under the law at various times and for various reasons. For example, in Exodus 30, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, 
And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their feet and their hands from it. And when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a sacrifice to the Lord, so so shall they wash their hands and feet so they will not die. God's point in this, of course, is not that he doesn't want people before him with dirty hands. His point is for the reason we just mentioned. It was reflective of a true repentant heart recognizing sin and the fact that we have to be cleansed if we're going to come before God in his presence. In fact, the Greek word here being used for washing, washing the hands, it's baptizo. Baptizo. The exact same word we use for baptism in the New Testament. John the baptizo is the name in the Greek. John the Baptist. So baptizo here, it's a a ceremonial washing away of sin. There was something that the elders had established here, though, that had nothing to do with the biblical understanding of what cleansing was about. They had devised this kind of special cleansing because it gave them an opportunity to demonstrate their righteousness through works. That was their motivation for establishing this rule, for the elders having established this. As an act of piety, it became a work of the flesh. It was my way, in my own power, in my own flesh, to stand before other men and demonstrate that I was righteous because I followed these ceremonial rules of washing. But it was not accompanied by true repentance. That's a key. When you and I step into a baptismal, as an adult, having come to faith, we choose to be baptized, we are demonstrating an outward act that is reflective of an inward change. And that inward change is, I've repented. And I recognize my sinfulness. And I recognize the need for God's grace. That's the point of the baptism. They're not doing it for that reason. These men are not standing around saying, I'm so sinful, I need God's cleansing. I repent of my sinfulness. There's no sense of, of of that feeling, of that thought in the moment as they wash their hands. It is an outward act of piousness. So when they invite Jesus to participate in this and actually criticize him for not doing it, they look upon him and they say, why don't you wash? Why aren't you doing what we're supposed to do, what the elders have taught all of us to do? So why didn't he do it? Why didn't Jesus do it? I mean, he stepped down into the river with John the Baptist, didn't he? So why didn't he do this? Was he just trying to provoke the Pharisees? Do you think he just avoided participating in the washing merely to bait them into accusing him? He wanted an argument? No, that's not the answer. The reason has, there's actually two reasons why he didn't do this. The first reason is the fact that the practice is a rule of men, not a practice given by God. It has no value spiritually in the way it had been devised or used By washing, the Pharisees were doing here in Luke 11, not something prescribed by God, but something prescribed by men. And therefore, Jesus was not going to honor it. And he wasn't going to honor it, not simply because it didn't come from God. Sometimes we do things that men devise for the sake of being cooperative, for the sake of obeying our leaders, or being uh, simply allowing for good order in a service or in some other context, right? So it's not that we always only follow God, never follow men. It's not simply that. It's that this was a gratuitous act. The purpose behind it, the reason it had been devised, was an evil reason. To look pious outwardly without actually being pious inwardly. And therefore, it was a sham. It was a hollow act. And if Jesus had participated in it, he would have been condoning the behavior and the attitude of these men. And he wasn't going to do that. You know, the Pharisees were famous for this kind of superficial stuff, right? Remember, they've been told, and we've heard in other places in the gospel, Jesus say, don't pray the way the Pharisees do. Don't stand on the street corners to gain the praises of men as you pray. Don't 
have this drawn, sad face every time you fast so that men know you're fasting and praise you for that act of piousness. If you're going to fast, he says, wash your face. Look normal, happy, and content. Don't give any sign that you're fasting. If you're going to pray, go into your closet and pray where no one can see you but your Father in heaven. The point being that if you're out to get the praises of men, good. Go get it. That's your reward. You're done. You gain nothing beyond that. If you're looking for the praise of the Father in heaven, however, then don't do what you do in a way that seeks the praises of men. But that's all that was on the heart of the Pharisees. So Jesus is not going to participate in an act that actually stood in opposition to God rather than one that actually tried to glorify God. The second reason he would ignore this ritual is particular to this situation. It's unique to this moment. He's about to enter, remember, into a discourse with the Pharisees over this issue of outward appearance versus inward change. I mean, we know that's about to happen because he just launches into it. He couldn't have that message. He couldn't have the, the standing to take that message to these people if he had preceded it by engaging in an act that actually would have been a contradiction for Jesus. It would have been a contradiction. It would have been hypocrisy for Jesus to engage in ceremonial washing before he brought this message to the Pharisees. Why is that? Why is it that he would have been a hypocrite to have engaged in ceremonial washing? Well, remember why God instituted the idea of ceremonial washing in the first place. Now, I'm not saying God instituted this one, but just in general, the idea of ceremonial washing. Why did God even give that idea in the law? Because it was a symbolic reminder of the need for sin to be removed, for sin to be cleansed away. It didn't actually remove a person's sin. The law never claimed that it was able to remove a man's sin by the ceremonial washing. It didn't claim to have that effect. It was an outward sign of the repentance that was supposed to be taking part on the inward part of the person doing the washing, like baptism is for us today. That was its purpose. It was an acknowledgement by the person that they were unworthy to approach God apart from his power to forgive, to cleanse sin. Okay? So if that's the point of ceremonial washing, as it was devised by God under the law, now take Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or 1 John 3, 5. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And there are other verses, of course, that speak to this same truth. Jesus never sinned. He never had his own sin. He took on our sin, but that's not saying that he himself had sin. Being without any sin of his own, there is no point for him to engage in ceremonial washing. If Jesus did wash, it would have been a contradiction. His outward action of washing away sin that didn't actually exist inwardly would have been a contradiction. He would have been doing something outwardly that was not consistent with what was true inwardly. And he's about to make the same criticism of these men, only from the opposite condition, right? They, on the other hand, do have sin inwardly, and yet they're pretending like they have none outwardly. That's their contradiction. Ironically, Jesus would have been engaging in his own contradiction from the reverse perspective had he engaged in that washing, and he's not going to do that. His outward behavior is going to reflect exactly what is true inwardly. I don't need to wash. I don't have sin. You, on the other hand, wash as a proof of your righteousness, and yet you are corrupt on the inside, full of robbery and wickedness, he says. And so Jesus acts in a consistent manner. 
And he turns it back on the Pharisees and says, you wash outwardly, but not with a contrite and repentant heart. You wash with a prideful expectation that their self-righteousness would be acknowledged by men. Luke 6.45, in a verse we read a few months ago in chapter 6, said this, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good, and the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. That's the basic principle Jesus has in view here. What's true on the inside comes out eventually on the outside, though you try to wash it away, though you try to hide it. You know, the Pharisees are consistently shown in Scripture as demonstrating evil thoughts, evil intentions. Christ knew their thoughts. Those are reflected in the Gospel record. And they combine that with this outward attempt to look holy and righteous. That's their, that's their key feature. That's their modus operandi, to use the, uh, the fancy term from law enforcement, right? That's their typical pattern. And yet, while their hearts remain evil and unrepentant, they they have this scrupulous outward appearance of of righteousness. It's complete hypocrisy. In verses 39 through 44, he addresses the hypocrisy. Now, it's especially noteworthy here that Jesus uses the word woe when he speaks to the Pharisees. In fact, he's going to use it a combination of six times. Three times against the Pharisees, three times against the lawyers that we're going to see here in a minute. The number three in Scripture is the number of the Godhead, right? Right? The number of God himself, or it's a number that represents God's divine action. God at work, in other words. And woes, by definition, by the very definition of the word, means divine judgment. He's not saying woe is in, you know, too bad. Whoa, that's a shame. Whoa, that's, that's a hard, you know, that's bad. No, he's saying woe is in you're going to hell. Seriously. Woe meaning divine judgment. And he's saying three times over, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just like out of Revelation, the three woes of Revelation. Divine judgment. He's declaring God's divine judgment on these men. That was that second short-term consequence I introduced with this morning. He is formally rejecting and condemning the leadership of the nation of Israel once and for all in this moment. The men I'm talking about in their day, in that moment, are being divinely judged by God. Now remember, Jesus is the one and only one who has the right and the authority to judge divinely, to be the judge of the world. So there is only one person who can do that, and Jesus here is doing that, declaring woe, declaring divine judgment on these men. And he's doing it for how they brought down not just themselves, but a whole generation of men and women in the nation of Israel. He accuses them of things like, for example, worrying about tithing. I love this example because I think we, if we're not careful, fall into some of these same patterns on occasion. He worries about tithing. To the point that they literally go into a garden where they're growing herbs. If you've ever done this, a little herb garden, we sometimes grow them in little pots on our window ledge. He goes into an herb garden and they take out the mint and the rue and other small herbs. And, you know, you're basically picking either the leaves or the flowers off these little plants. And they take 10% and they measure out 10% and they make sure that they're taking those to the temple and that they're giving their 10% to the temple on a regular basis. They're that pious that they measure out a tenth of their own herbs. And then he says, but they neglect the basic mercy and charity that would be true for anyone who really felt that way, whose inward thought was really one of charity and of wanting to help the disadvantaged, of mercy. If that was truly what was inside them, if that was the motivation for them to be doing so much of this counting and measuring, then not only would they be doing it in the small things, he says, what is the, what's the way Jesus puts it in the verses we read out of Luke? Verse 42 He says, but these are the things you should have done 
He's not saying stop being careful in how you tithe. He's saying, yeah, you should do those things. You should tithe carefully, even down to those kinds of simple ideas in life. But then what does he add at the end? Without neglecting the others. Without missing the big point, which is that we are also to be generous in all things, in the big things as well as in the the minor things. But, of course, it was a game to the Pharisees. Their charity was really about a show. Because what gets more attention when you give 10% of your paycheck or 10% of your herb garden? Right? You give 10% of your herbs, people are like, I can't believe how carefully that person works to tithe properly. They're so pious. They're so righteous. I could never do that. But then if you looked at their paycheck, they give nothing. That's a hypocrite in this sense. He says they love the honor they get from people for their outward acts of righteousness. He says in a very interesting way, I want you to get the sense of this comment. He calls them tombs that people knowingly, unknowingly walk over. You know why that's such a damning statement to a Jew? In Jewish culture, if you came into contact with a grave, even unknowingly, you were being defiled as a Jew. Under the law, you were defiled and you had to go through what the law provided for, for cleansing. It was the same idea as touching a dead body. So if I came into contact with a tomb, I became an unclean Jew and I had to, go, I had to be set apart from the congregation. I had to t- go and, and go to the temple and sacrifice and, and be cleansed according to the law. And these men are so corrupting, Jesus says, so corrupting in their influence that they are defiling unsuspecting crowds who follow their teaching. They're as if they're like tombs buried under the ground that you don't realize are there and you walk across them unsuspectingly and you're defiled. That's the comparison he's making. Hidden graves that defile people come into contact with. But the most insightful example that Jesus gives, which he actually started with, and I saved here for, for the end, is this picture he paints of the hypocrisy of cleaning the outside of the cups. Now, we've heard this one, I know, before. It's a common, it's a common teaching. I've heard it repeated. I'm sure you have, too. But I want you to get a full appreciation for what he's saying. Imagine, and let's talk with the younger folks here. Everybody in here makes the kids do the dishes, right? That's how it should be, right? So we make our kids do our dishes. <laughs> Some of us would do that, only we'd have to be buying new dishes on a pretty regular basis, I guess. So imagine young people here that you've volunteered. Let's do it the right way. But you volunteered to do the dishes in your family, right? Because that happens a lot, I know. You volunteered to do dishes. After you finish, you invite your parents in to come inspect your work. Now, and I want you to imagine for a moment that the cabinet's kind of high, so you can't put them away very easily. So you're waiting for your parents to help you do that part of the job. But you laid them out on the counter so they can come in and, and, and see the wonderful work you did to clean the dishes for the family. And so as the parents walk into the kitchen, you know, they see them from a distance as they walk into the kitchen and they notice that they're just sparkly clean. The dishes look wonderful. They're all stacked neatly on the countertop. And you begin to praise the work of your children. Even before you fully reach the counter, you're already in praise mode, thanking your kids for the work they did. But then as you approach and you look a little closer, you realize that as these dishes have been stacked, every bowl and cup is completely untouched on the inside. It looks exactly like it did when you cleared the table. They're filthy. They're full of food in some cases. They've got remnants of the meal all over it. The outside look perfect. But you get close enough to see the inside and you realize, what is this? Now, what do you think your parents' reaction would be to that discovery? How would they respond to that? I mean, you might even think they'd laugh at first, right? Because it's so absurd. It's so ridiculous. You, may, you almost have to go to more work, wouldn't you, to clean the outside and leave the inside untouched? What holds true for cups and dishes in this scenario holds true for humans, for people, spiritually. It's possible for men, by their own effort and by their own hand, 
to clean the outside, spiritually speaking. I can walk around and make myself look righteous. It's, you know, let's be honest with one another. It's not hard. I mean, especially in this culture, right? Our standards are like down here. So it's really not that hard to walk around and look righteous. I mean, the average person would consider themselves righteous if they show up for church most of the time, if they tithe most of the time, if they go to Bible study once every couple of years, you know, they join one when it comes into, you know, kind of fits into the calendar. And I'm not being, I'm not criticizing that schedule per se. What I'm saying is you do just that and you're looking righteous to the average person. You really don't have to do much more than that. And you tell people when they're sick, I'll pray for you, though you never really do. You know, that kind of stuff happens all the time and that's pretty typical. That's being righteous in our culture for Christians. And viewed from a distance, we can give the illusion that we're righteous. And by distance here, of course, I mean the distance of our relationship with other people. To the extent that they don't get to know us very well, they don't really let, we never let our guard down in front of them, they never really know who we are. All they know is what they see on the outside, and they say, yeah, that guy's righteous, he's a good person. I mean, I'm doing it for you guys. You know, you catch me on the wrong day, and I don't look anything like a Christian. Uh, and, I, and I'm just telling you that because it's true for most of us, right? My kids would tell you stories that you'd look at and go, and that guy's our pastor? Right? That's how we all are to some extent. The best we can hope to achieve is an outward type of cleansing, if that's our only focus. I've used the example in here. In many cases, you've heard me say it before, right? A lipstick on a pig. Right? I can take a pig. I can put a lipstick on it. To some extent, it looks better than it did before, but it's still a pig. It's still a pig. It's merely an act. It's a useless work. It gains the praises of men, only in that case it just gained laughter. But it doesn't count for anything when you're talking about our Creator. On the day, and, and hear me out, when we st- there will be a day for every man, woman, and child, believer or unbeliever, we will stand before Christ and give an account. And on that day, all this stuff we've gotten very good at doing that shows an outward appearance doesn't even come into the conversation. It has no value to God, and so it won't even be there to help give us credit for anything. Unlike the cups, though, we can't clean the inside. I can't can't even get in there. I mean, there's no way to physically clean or spiritually clean the inside of yourself. You can't do that. The Pharisees had never experienced that inward change, to be sure. They're still filthy on the inside. And I can't do it any differently. I can't change my own nature without the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. That's the mechanism of change internally for anyone. The Holy Spirit is the maid. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes in and actually cleans the inside of us spiritually. I'm forever a pig, lipstick or no lipstick, until the day that God by faith changes me inwardly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then I'm told out of Scripture I become a new creation a new creature in Christ. The old has been put to death, the new has arrived. That comes out of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That means clean people are people who have been saved and are beginning to be cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me give you a corollary. If that's true, let me give you a corollary to that truth. You need and I need to resist the urge that we all share to clean people who are dirty on the outside. You know what I mean when I say that? You know, there's um, people that we'll meet from time to time who their, their life is a wreck and they've got all these habits that we know are destructive in their life. We want to clean them up. In fact, really what we want them to be is a Christian, but the way we tend to approach it, if we're not careful, is we start with the cleaning up process and then we say, well, bring you to church and you'll become a Christian. It's the let's clean you up before you get saved kind of approach. 
And that's a dangerous thing to do. I don't think, it clearly can't do anything of any lasting value. That's the lipstick on the pig analogy. What I want to do is get them to be a Christian as much as God may give opportunity and then let him do the cleaning up. And then I, by discipling, become a resource to that person in that process. But if I'm so focused on what they do rather than who they are, I can make the mistake of actually creating another Pharisee out of them. A person who's outwardly clean, inwardly dirty, and doesn't know the difference. And has mistaken that kind of approach to what true Christianity is. We sometimes call it legalism, but it's always the same thing. I give you rules. If you follow them, you're good. That's not Christianity. The rules are what God writes on the heart of the individual, having brought them to faith. Now, in response to Jesus' cutting comments, look at the lawyers. You've got to love the lawyers here. I don't think they're getting it, and they just, they just open their mouth and stick their foot in it. In verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And Jesus at 46 says, Woe to you lawyers as well! For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was you, they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. <laughs> You've got to love the lawyers. Now, let's remember what a lawyer is in this day. These are lawyers, law. Remember, these are the men whose job it was to interpret the law of Moses. And in interpreting it, present rules to men on how they might keep it. Pharisees and lawyers were very closely connected. In fact, most scholars will tell you that lawyers probably were all Pharisees, but it was a subset of Pharisees who had the role, the job, of being a lawyer, of becoming so intently aware of the law and all its detail that they could be a, a person to adjudicate, to explain the details and make decisions on what was lawful and what wasn't. Now, the Pharisees were just the enforcers. The lawyers were the ones who made up the rules. And the lawyer's comment here, I like the way he starts. You know why he said what he said? Well, when you say those things, you insult us too. Well, it almost seems stupid, doesn't it? Because you're thinking, well, yeah, that's what the whole thing was. I was insulting you. I mean, I was criticizing you. No, it's reason, the reason he said what he said is because Jesus started talking to the Pharisees. And the lawyers hear what he's saying about the Pharisees, and they try to distance themselves a little bit and say to Jesus, you know, when you criticize those guys, you're insulting us too. And he says, no, you're missing it. I'm insulting you and I'm criticizing you too. I'm not just in, uh, criticizing the Pharisees. I'm criticizing you and the Pharisees. So he lays it on the lawyers too. The section here, the, this section we just read, actually culminates Jesus' condemnation of the religious leaders that we started with today. In fact, if you were to scan your eyes ahead, if you have your Bible open, scan into the ver- first verses of chapter 12. Beginning, for example, in verse 1 and then continuing all the way to verse 10. You're going to notice as you scan through those verses, which we'll cover again in two weeks, you'll notice that Jesus starts to go over the heads of the Pharisees and begins to speak directly to the crowd, warning them that they're either going to believe in him or they're going to answer for their unbelief. In other words, what he's saying is, if you follow after these guys, you're going to go where they're going. 
And here's your one chance to hear of a different path. So for those in this generation who follow after those leaders, they suffer the same condemnation. So here in chapter 11, as we finish it, Jesus completes his statement of condemnation. Just like the Pharisees, he says, the lawyers are condemned. Three woes go to them, just like to the, to the Pharisees. Just briefly, we'll look at each one. The first woe, he says, is because the lawyers place burdens on men. And it's real simple, right? In how they interpreted the law of Moses, they created all these countless rules. And as the rules pile up on top of one another, the men who try to keep those rules, thinking that that's what righteousness is, are so overburdened by these rules, these senseless rules, that have no spiritual value, by the way, that they get completely discouraged. The rules actually have the opposite effect of what the law was intended to bring. They discourage people. They give a sense of helplessness. They create guilt, which leads to hopelessness. It's this downward cycle of burdening the men and the women who would try to apply these rules to their life to the point where they either give up or they're hopelessly convinced they're not going to heaven. That's the burden of legalism, both then and today. And to make matters worse, we're told the lawyers never even attempted to keep those same rules themselves. The ones they lay on the other people, they didn't even bother with them themselves. It was complete show. You know, we're not like these lawyers. We're not unfaithful. Let me put it that way. To the Christian in, the, in this room, we're not unfaithful men as these lawyers are. But we can get awful close to what they do if we're not careful with our brothers and sisters. And we do it if we create rules that have no value for righteousness. You know, our rules would be different. We wouldn't create rules born out of the law of Moses, right? But we would create rules born out of the culture of Christianity. There's things we do as Christians that are very culture-driven. Christians always do this. They never do that. And depending on which subculture of the Christian faith you run around in, the rules will be a little different, right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls that do. Kind of, you know, there's that world. And then there's those that are maybe a little more liberal, but they just have a, t- a kind of different set of things they expect. Whatever those things are, and whatever good reason we may have had initially when they became a rule, the moment they become a rule written on stone and I start handing it out, I'm, I've lost the law of liberty. I've lost the law of Christ. I'm back under the law of Moses. I'm doing what Paul warned the Galatian church not to do in chapter 3. Having been saved by grace, do you now decide that you're going to be saved by works? What God tells us to do individually does not require that he's telling the neighbor next to you to do the same thing. That's a challenge. A lot of Christians struggle with that. There's some classic examples, right? My favorite one I use quite often in here is is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is part of the law. It's gone. There is no such thing as a Sabbath for a Christian anymore except the one in Christ. Every day of your life is now the Sabbath because you rest in Christ, not in a day of the week. Now, if God plays it on your heart to treat your Sundays as a Sabbath, a day of rest, of refraining from work and other activity then do that because God has placed that on your heart and you'd be disobedient to do otherwise. But if he's given you the liberty to see your Sunday in in a different way, then rejoice in that liberty. And like Romans 14 says, those who have the liberty should not impose it on those who don't feel with the liberty. And those who don't feel the liberty ought not impose that on the ones who do. Because in each case we're wrong. We've taken a law that God has given to us individually on our heart and we've put it back on stone and now we're handing it out to other people asking them to do what God's told us to do. That's legalism, and it creates the same kind of hopelessness and discouragement that the law was being used to create here in this day. And that's not, the, that's not what the law of liberty is. That's not what the law of Christ is. The law of Christ is love your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do those two things, and you are keeping the law of Christ. As a 
second woe he throws on the lawyers here, persecuting the prophets. In past centuries, God had sent prophets to the nation of Israel any time they were at a point of sin and disobedience. And he used them to chastise that nation back to obedience. Now, do you like it when someone shows up and tells you you're doing something wrong? No. Do you like to be chastised? No. Is it good for you? Yes. And that's the problem that the lawyers and their fathers had. As the prophets came and gave the message they didn't want to hear, they persecuted them and they murdered them. And it was the lawyers, here's the irony that Jesus is pointing out. In the day that Jesus walked the earth, do you know what one of the duties of the lawyers was? To maintain the tombs of the prophets. They took tremendous pride in the fact, it was like a civic duty. They were the ones who went to the graves and rebuilt them if they were falling down or made bigger edifices on top of the smaller ones and washed them and kept them clean. Do you see the irony in that? Their fathers, meaning spiritually, the men who came before the lawyers who thought just like the lawyers think, were the same people who put the prophets to death. And now the modern-day versions of those people are the ones who are, who are showing piousness by cleaning up the tombs and protecting them. Jesus says, you're a complete hypocrite. Your fathers are the ones who actually killed these men. And he says, you're turning your back on me now, doing the same thing. And just to prove how false and hard your heart is, God, he says, is going to send you new prophets just so you can prove the fact that you're no different than your fathers. In this day, of course, he's talking about the apostles and the early Christians and John the Baptist. Men like that who came in the early days of the church and said the same kind of things that the prophets said in their day. And just as their forerunners were persecuted, so will the apostles be by these men, by the Pharisees, by the lawyers. And then he says something really interesting. He says, they're going to bring the judgment onto their heads of not just the deaths of the apostles, but of all the prophets. And, and this is what God is saying. He's saying, in past generations, as the nation had persecuted and murdered the prophets, God had withheld his judgment against the nation for those sins. He had elected not to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel specifically for the sins of murdering the prophets. He had withheld that judgment. But now as the rejection of his son takes place in chapter 11, God is going to bring all that stored wrath and bring it upon this generation for the death of not just the prophets in their day, but of all prophets before them. From Abel, the very first prophet mentioned in Scripture who's martyred, to Zechariah, the very last prophet in Scripture to be martyred. Interesting. From A to Z, the first to the last. Think God is sovereign even in the naming of the people who are born? That the first prophet martyred would be Abel, the last one martyred would be Zechariah in the Old Testament. This wrath, I believe, was culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Upon the nation losing not just their city, but their temple being scattered. And if we're tempted to think we can't make this same mistake as we end and go into the last woe here, I just want to make a passing comment here. We're not necessarily out murdering prophets. At least I hope not. Come to church in the morning, go out to lunch, and then let's go murder a prophet. I hope that's not the way we work. But don't we sometimes engage in character assassination? You know, to hate is to murder, Jesus said. Don't we sometimes speak ill of men who speak God's word? Do, you know, do we sometimes... Uh, fail to show respect for, for men who are called into ministry. And I'm not talking about me, right? I'm talking about those who you don't go to their church because you don't like them. And because of some things they've done or said or some ways they, they uh, conduct their ministry, we take it upon ourselves then to be their critic. I do that. I think we've all probably done that at times. That doesn't I'm not saying we should condone everything we see a preacher doing. I'm not making that point. What I'm making the point of, though, is if we're not careful, we cross the line and become their judge. 
and we character assassinate. And in the same sense, we're not taking perhaps what God may teach through them in some day in the future because we've already written them off as being a person whose message is of no value to us. That's a sign of, of not perhaps having a teachable heart at all times. Don't shut our ears. Don't stick to our rules and then fail to hear a correction coming from an unlikely source. And I found that myself sometimes as I hear preachers I've often dismissed as being uh, improper teachers, uh, unworthy of my attention, and then I'll catch myself hearing them when I didn't expect and something they say kind of pierces my heart for a moment. And I realize that even God can use a mule to speak the truth. He can use me. He can use them. Finally, the last woe. It's the climax. It's the chief sin. It's the one we'll end on today. The lawyers and the Pharisees as well, I think, are guilty of this sin. Christ says they took away the key of knowledge. What's the key? What's he talking about here? The knowledge. Let's start with that. What's the knowledge? The knowledge is simply the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. The knowledge that the Messiah would come and you either reject him or you accept him and everything is on the line. The knowledge of the gospel. So what's the key to that knowledge? What for these people in their generation, in that day, what would have been the key for them to know Jesus was the Messiah and to believe in him when he came? And therefore, what key did these men take away that prevented the the culture, that generation, from knowing Jesus as the Messiah? Well, consider the role of the lawyer. What is the role of a lawyer? To interpret the law, and more generally the Torah, for the sake of the people who fall under the law, for the nation of Israel. And they distorted the truth of that word, horribly. They turned it into a burden that weighed men down. They did not interpret it properly. They did not bring that knowledge to people properly. But rather, they distorted it to the point where the Jew had no clue, out of their own word, that Jesus was the Messiah. So the key that the lawyers took away was the meaning of the word, the truth of the word. Because remember, every page of the Old Testament points to Christ. The whole law, the sacrificial system, the stories we have of Joseph, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the nation of Israel's history is a one-way road pointing them to the Messiah and to Jesus specifically. You You and I can see that very easily when we open up the Old Testament because we have the Holy Spirit teaching us. In that day... The nation of Israel depended on the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers to provide them, and the prophets to provide them that insight. And the lawyers had taken away that key by how they had distorted the truth. And by robbing them of that truth and taking it away, they had condemned and doomed that generation. And Jesus adds that they themselves never entered into that knowledge. They hindered those, in fact, who were entering into that understanding. Folks, as we end today, there's nothing more important to God than His Word. Nothing. Everything else we count as important in our spiritual walk and our experience as Christians, as important as it may be, if it's anything other than number two or below, it's wrong. Because there's only one number one in God's mind. It's His Word. He says in the Psalms that He values the Word even above His own name. There's nothing in God's economy more important than His own Word. It's what He created the world through. It's what He sustains it by. It is His Son. It is the Word before us in our lap. And what we do with it What we believe about it and how we treat it will determine everything for us in terms of eternity. Rather than hinder ourselves and others in in what they know of it and how we use it, let's make sure we don't place anything else above it. That we don't ever say to somebody, as a good Christian, you need to be in Bible study, but you also need to be doing this, 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 and this. You know what? If you did nothing more than tell a Christian they need to be studying their Bible and then you put a period at at the end of that sentence and you never said another word, 
you're fine. Because what will happen is, through the study of the Word and the Holy Spirit in that believer, everything else of need will be directed to that individual. God will see to it that they get what they need. But you put something before the Word, and you're really, in some sense, committing the same mistake that the lawyers did. You're taking away the key of the knowledge of the truth for somebody. We never do that here. We make that a point in our message as well as in, our, in how we conduct our service. That's, enough. That's evident enough. Let's, let's take that to the world. Let's move outside this room and show that to others. We'll close in prayer. Father, I give you praise and glory and honor for your word. I give you honor, Father, and praise for our time in worship, for the opportunity even to meet. Father, you remind us in your word through the book of James that we are not to say what we are going to go do tomorrow, where we will go and what we will do, because we are but vapor here today and gone tomorrow. We only say, Father, that if you will, we will do it. According to your will, we will do it. And let us keep that same sense of urgency, Father, in all that we say and do ourselves. We've come this morning, we've worshipped, we've studied, we are thankful, Father, we are grateful, and we intend to take what we've learned and put it to use. But, Father, we don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if we'll be here next week. We don't know what the future holds. And we don't depend on that, Father. We depend on your word and the opportunities you give us now to use it, to learn it, and to spread it. Give us a heart to know that urgency and to act accordingly, Father. Thank you for the gifts and the ministry of the men and women who have come this morning and participated with us here and have helped make this service possible. Thank you, Father, that uh, you give us the opportunity each week to join in fellowship this way. And as we leave here this morning, Father, we do pray it would be your will we would return. And in the days in between, that we would be used mightily to your glory to bring the message of the gospel to any man or woman who may grace our, our path. Give us a heart, Father, to see those opportunities and to seize them. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.